Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 18. The journey to freedom continues. Today we're talking about freedom from burnout. And while you're turning, let me give a shout out to all the dads present here today. Happy Father's Day. Let's give them a round of applause, all the dads. Yeah. You're the man. Way to go, guys. We love you, appreciate you, pray for you. And the more of you who are slipping back into our services, welcome. I confess my first time back, the moment we began to sing, I was overwhelmed with emotion. I mean, the tears, I had to fight them back. It was so good to sing praises with God's people. I have missed you. We're missing more of you online, and hopefully in the near future, you can join us as well. Well, we're not yet through the woods on the COVID crisis, but perhaps we're starting to see the light just a little bit through the trees. I don't want to lose what we're intended to learn during these times when we've been set aside. I want there to be some carryover of lessons learned when we return to normal, or maybe we should say the new normal. I think a lot of those lessons are wrapped around family, both physically and spiritually. In fact, I submit to you, in a nutshell, I have learned this. We cannot do life alone. You agree? Yeah, we can do life. We need each other. Today is Father's Day, and ironically, our text for this morning is all about a father and his father-in-law. I loved my late father-in-law, but he was easy to love. And though he was a longtime professor at Iowa State University in Ames, 25 years in industrial education, um, Dr. Riley, Dad Riley, if you will, was a humble man, very down to earth. He loved his students, but he loved his family even more. And to me, the greatest legacy he left is the fact that, including my wife Karen down here, the oldest of five, all five of those kids are passionately following Christ. And I say thank you, Dad Riley. As Exodus 18 opens, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, plus Moses' wife, Zipporah, and Moses and Zipporah's two boys, named Gershom and Eliezer, are traveling with Grandpa, coming for a visit, because Dad's been away from them for a while. You, you see a map here on the screen. It, it was a long journey from Midian, where Jethro lived, all the way over to Mount Sinai, where Exodus 18 occurs. And, and I have to believe that being the fact that they are apparently separated for a long time, and, and I'm piecing this together, that, that while Moses was leading Israel out of Egyptian bondage, Zipporah and the kids went to stay with grandpa and grandma for a period of months. They were separated. And there must have been, there must have been some pain in that separation. You agree? When you're away from family, it's hard. On a lighter note, do you suppose that Moses cleaned his tent before the family arrived? Nothing cleans like company coming. <laughs> Especially when that company includes your wife. <laughs> I speak from experience. <laughs> I, I get a chuckle also out of the name of the father-in-law, Jethro. I mean, here we are with our local 
<laughs> barbecue eatery by the name of Jethro's. <laughs> and I grew up in a generation where we watched the Beverly Hillbillies. Anybody watch that? Remember the character in that story called Jethro Bodine, the crazy cousin, kind of corny? <laughs> well, the Jethro in this story was a prestigious priest from a neighboring nation. He was a serious guy. And while I can't say it for certain, it's very likely, at least possible, that this account in front of us points to his conversion experience. When, when Jethro arrived with the family, and Moses just bubbled over with all this information of what had happened during these previous months. Oh, Dad, you got to hear what God, the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you got to hear what he did. He talks about all these ten plagues, you know, the last plague. He talks about the Passover. He talks about their journey through the Red Sea and the giving of manna from the heavens and the water from the rock. And Jethro is just blown away by what he hears. And he makes a dramatic statement and then he took a dramatic action. We pick it up in verse 10 of our text. Upon hearing this, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, that's the name Yahweh, the I Am, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now watch this next phrase. Now I know. That tells me he probably got converted here. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And then he shows the fruit of his conversion. If you really come to faith in Christ, it will show. And how did it show? Verse 12, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought up burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron, Moses' brother, came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. A believer's fellowship meal foretaste to the coming Lord's table, which, of course, we celebrate in this New Testament church era. Now, suppose with me for a moment that this really was Jethro's conversion. I have a question for you. Is a new believer ever in a position to give advice to a more seasoned believer? Let me go a step further. Could an unsaved father-in-law ever be in a position to give direction to his believing kids? Shake your head like this. Yes would be the answer on both counts. Sometimes we may be shocked to realize that God has spoken to us through an unlikely source, even our in-laws. If you're sitting next to an in-law, smile real big at him right now, okay? Of course, the question is, are we humble enough to receive this advice? Most of you know that I'm the counseling pastor here on staff, and, and uh, when people come to me for counseling, um, I often ask them to sign off on four things before I agree. I'll flash them on the screen for you. This is what I say. In order for me to counsel you, you have to have a teachable spirit. You can't be a know-it-all. Number two, you've got to make, give me some time. This didn't happen overnight. It's not going to be overcome overnight. Number three, you've got to be willing to do homework. You've got to have some skin in the game. You've got to be invested. More growth will occur outside the counseling room than inside if you do your homework. And then number four, you have to be willing to change. Change is the name of the game in the Christian life. Repentance 
which means change of mind and life, is the key to Christian growth. If you're not changing, you're not growing. Hmm. To Moses' credit, in effect, he signed off on these stipulations suggested by his father-in-law's advice. And by the way, this was unasked for advice. Do you ever get unasked for advice? Yeah, what, how does that make you feel? Someone has said unasked for advice can be construed as criticism, as in negative criticism. But I think sometimes we're far too defensive because sometimes God wants to give us some positive criticism through someone speaking into our lives as Jethro spoke into Moses. So we should not be so quick to defensiveness. This is really important. I want you to write this down. If you find change points in your life, you will find people who helped you bring them to you. If you find change points in your life, you will find people who helped bring you to them. Biggest communication problem in our dialogues is that we do not listen to understand. We listen to reply. Not Moses. Thankfully, he listened to understand. Well, what was Jethro's advice about? If you can imagine, Moses is leading about two million Israelis out in the wilderness <laughs> and he's the only guy counseling them. Two million people. Even saying that out loud makes me chuckle. He's trying to do it all by himself. <laughs> Jethro watched Moses in action only for one day, working like a maniac from morning till evening. And he said, time out, son-in-law. Can I have a word with you? Can I give you some advice? Now remember, Moses is 80 years old. <laughs> He's been doing this for a while, but he's a humble guy. Yeah, bring it on. In short, Jethro said to Moses, hey, buddy, drop the Messiah complex. You can't do it all yourself. Don't feel like you alone are serving God like Elijah felt one time, thinking he alone was following the Lord. He said, Moses, this is nuts. You're going to burn out, and the people of God are going to get frustrated waiting for you to get to them as they wait in line. You've got to come up with a new plan. And here was the plan, which I believe the Lord gave to Jethro, beginning in verse 17 of our text. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is it's not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. They're not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. And here's pointer number one. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. What is that saying? The leader is supposed to first and foremost be a man of prayer, intercessory prayer. Then number two in verse 20, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He must be a man of the word that teaches the word. He goes on, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people. The word judge there refers to giving advice. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. And I love verse 24. I just love this. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. In effect, Jethro was saying, things will always remain the same until the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of change. Let that sink in. That's where some of you are today. That's where America is even as I speak. Our nation needs to hear and read this quote. We're in deep trouble. We all know that. We're all staggered by what's going on nationally. We need brokenness. We need humility. We need prayer. We need to turn to God. The solution to America's problems are not political. They are spiritual. They need the gospel. They need to be born again and changed from the inside out. Last summer, my wife Karen and I went to the Iowa State Fair. Can't do that this year, unfortunately. Uh, we went with my brother and his wife. They were down from Sioux Falls, and we were eating at the Iowa Pork Producers Outdoor Eatery. And, and I noticed our senior senator from Iowa, Charles Grassley, walk in, and he was interviewed by one of the local television stations, and I, I made a mental note. Kurt, go up to him and thank him. I've long admired this farmer guy from from Iowa, who's so down to earth, but so right on. So I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Grassley, I'd like to introduce myself, and I did. And so I just want to say a big thank you for taking a stand for righteousness. Then he looked at me and he said, would you do me a favor? Sure, he said, I want you to go home and read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, and I want you to do it. Okay. <laughs> you say, what, what's 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 say? Well, essentially, it says, Paul's telling Timothy to tell his church, pray, intercede for all men, for kings, for all who are in authority. Why do we need to pray? Now, get this in light of what's going on in America. Pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Thank you, Mr. Grassley. That's exactly what we need. And it starts with that kind of godly leadership. Let me digress from the main point of this text in front of us for just a moment to ask a question of the text. Do you ever do that when you're reading the Bible? You ask it a question? Is there any hint here that Moses was neglecting his own family while he led Israel out of Egyptian bondage? They were separated for months, and maybe this is an unfair inference, maybe it's off base, but you got to know this does happen to leader types. Andy Stanley wrote about this years ago in his little book called Choosing to Cheat. The book is all about dads that sacrifice their kids on the altar of work, something we do well to wrestle with here on this Father's Day. And here's how Andy phrased it. The temptation is to substitute a condition for a commitment. The condition is often phrased like, when I, or if they, being translated, it's like saying to your child, you are so important to me that when I get the time, or if they lessen my workload, then I'll be able to spend some time with you. And he concludes his comments by saying, in effect, the dad is saying to his child, this job is more important than you are. My commitment is subject to my conditions. 
But of course, that won't fly in the minds of our family. No man's going to come to the end of his life and say, oh, I just wish I'd spent more time at work. Won't happen. Perhaps the whole COVID social distancing thing has had a bright side to it because some of you have been forced to stay home and you've been around the family more and you had some quality family time. I, I beg of you, I, I pray of you that you'll not surrender that when we, quote, go back to life as normal. Prioritize God and prioritize your family in the things of God. When Andy's kids were growing up at least twice a week at bedtime, he would ask each of them a series of questions. And dads, on this Father's Day, I want to challenge you to ask your kids these questions regularly. Here they are. Is everything okay in your heart? Did anyone hurt your feelings today? Are you mad at anyone? Did anyone break a promise to you? Is there anything I can do for you? You're trying to win your child's heart. You're not just a Gestapo yelling orders. You're trying to listen to their heart. You got, you got to grab their heart if you're going to win them for the Lord. This is a helpful tool. These questions are to put into your parental toolbox. But back to our text, the most obvious theme of this passage is the importance of delegation, or if you will, the principles of leadership. And if you compare Exodus 18, for example, with Acts chapter 6, where they chose deacons in the New Testament, you're going to see some parallels, guidelines for selecting qualified leaders in a godly context. Now, all of these principles are wrapped up in the 21st verse of Exodus 18, and here they are. How do you choose men to lead? Well, first of all, you've got to choose men of ability, able men. Choose men of spirituality, men who fear God. Choose men of honesty, guys who are trustworthy. Choose men of integrity, men who hate a bribe and won't take money under the table that the government knows nothing about. By the way, young ladies, you're looking for a husband? Look for men with these character qualities. These character qualities are really crucial. John Maxwell, the Christian leadership guru, maintains this. In a business context, 80% of success in equipping people to become successful is found in recruiting the right kind of people. But once the right kind of person is found, he or she has to be equipped and then energized. Maxwell goes on, you've never really trained and equipped someone until they can reproduce themselves. How do you reproduce yourself? People learn best by watching. Leadership is more caught than it is taught. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are, what you are. That's what they get. Five steps of equipping, or rather self-evident, seems simplistic, but here they are. I do it. I do it with you. You do it while I'm with you. You do it on your own. And you do it and somebody else learns from you. That's the principle of reproduction, multiplication. It's 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul told Timothy, the things which you heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others 
also. Hey, when it comes to discipleship, there is no elevator to success. We have to take the stairs. I can't preach one message, and suddenly everybody is fully discipled. No, this is a journey. This takes effort. It's what church life is all about. In Moses' case, he had to recruit and train key leaders to counsel those in the following groups. You see it in the text. The first tier leaders were there to shepherd thousands. Second tier leaders to shepherd hundreds. Third tier leaders to shepherd fifties. Fourth tier leaders to shepherd tens. Can you see the parallel to our leadership structure here at Sailorville? We've got pastor elders, that first tier, Church staff, second tier. Deacons, third tier. And the fourth tier involves our cell group leaders and all of our church workers. And every one of you is equally important if we're going to minister to a large group of people. Thank you for your service to Christ. As our church gets larger, it also has to get smaller. We have to minister to people in smaller groupings. You'll note back in our context that Moses was to be like the New Testament pastors described in Acts 6 and verse 4. Remember, supposed to be a man of a prayer and a man of the word, teaching the word of God. Moses was to specialize in explaining the law. Now, we're here in chapter 18. When we get to chapter 20, Moses is up on the mount and he receives the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and he has to instruct the people in what the Ten Commandments mean as well as the finer points of the law. Moses was a big-picture guy. Our church has grown large under Pastor Pat's leadership, and of necessity, we've had to move to a kind of a staff of specialists. I don't think any of us would call ourselves specialists, but we kind of zero in in a certain area. Um, I've had to learn the importance of pouring myself into others under me all of our staff is helping me. Meredith doing that from the female side of, of perspective. And right now, praise God, we have, counting myself, nine people officially involved in our counseling staff here at the church, not counting the multitudes of others who are counseling regularly. And I praise God for that because that's a practical application of what we're talking about here. So how do we mentor? As one looks at this text, <clears throat> excuse me, from a leadership point of view, let me share with you some more obvious laws of leadership. And again, I'm going to borrow from the leadership guru, uh, John Maxwell. He's, he's written a piece called 21 Laws of Leadership. I've only got time to give you six of them. And here we go. First, he said, <clears throat> trying to choose leaders, there's the law of respect. People naturally follow leaders stronger than themselves. Number two is the law of connection. Leaders touch a heart before they ask for a hand. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. you got to love people. Pastoring is all about loving people and loving them well. We're not just eggheads here, you know, dispatching information. We're trying to love on you in a relationship. Moses was that kind of a leader. Number three is the law of the inner circle. A leader's potential is determined by those closest to him, as illustrated by Jesus' work in the training of the 12, the disciples, commonly called her apostles, and then his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. He really poured into them. 
Now, application here at our church. Pastor Pat has to work closely with the pastoral staff, we call them elders, and with the deacons. Pastor Pat, Pastor Abe, Pastor Jason work with the church staff. Pastor Jason is oversight of all the cell group leaders. Pastor Paul down here is over all of our music personnel. Pastor Jared is over all the children and youth workers, and as mentioned previously, I'm over the counseling staff. We're trying to break it down to do an effective job in the spirit of Exodus 18. Number four is the law of empowerment. Only secure leaders give power to others. We have to learn to give away responsibility. But responsibility without empowerment leads to frustration. I have to regularly tell my counselors on my team, hey, I'm here to empower you. You do it. God will help you. We're going to help train you and mentor you. Number five is the law of reproduction. It takes a leader to raise up a leader. One discipleship model uses three terms to describe what this looks like using race imagery. Stay with me here. The three terms are pacers, racers, and tracers. Pacers are the guys that lead the way. Racers are the company of people that hang in the middle of the pack. <clears throat> and tracers are the trailers that can't see the guy at the front and need the guys in the middle to mentor them. Moses was meant to be the pacer, <clears throat> but he needed hundreds of others to be racers who could help <clears throat> the thousands of people who were tracers. Oh, by the way, where do you find yourself on that racetrack? Which category describes you? If you're in the final category, we'd like to move you up into the middle, and eventually we'd like to move you all the way maybe up to the front of the line, because that's what Christian discipleship is all about. Just one more, just the sixth one out of these 21 from John Maxwell. Here's the law of sacrifice. A leader must give up to go up. He must not be a prima donna. This church is not about any one individual. It's not about that leader being the center of everything. We esteem our leaders, but we don't worship them. Leaders find a way for the team to win. Question, do you, do you aspire to leadership according to First? Timothy 3.1, if you do, you, you aspire to a good thing. But I say not just to, to those of you who want to be maybe tier one leaders. I say to all of you, if you're going to be used, you've got to be willing to sacrifice. And here's a question that I found very penetrating to my own soul that I want to ask you, not, if, not only if you aspire to be a leader, but, but also if you aspire to be used by God. You want to be used by God? Here's a question you've got to answer right now. Here it is. If you are honest, how many of you would admit that you've not yet done something God has asked you to do or has asked you to stop doing, maybe even for a long time? I contend that if you know God and his spirit lives in you, right now you know exactly what that is because he's been talking to you for a while. So what are you going to do with that? Do you want to be used? Until you obey, your spiritual momentum will be dead in the water. In this narrative of Moses, I see how quickly Moses, who was advanced in age, a leader of a massive group of people, how quickly 
he obeyed what was obviously a word from the Lord through his father-in-law, Jethro. No wonder, Scripture says, he was the meekest man on the earth. As I look at the life lesson takeaways from the COVID crisis, again, I say we can't do life alone. Moses needed help. Israel needed help. We need help. We all need each other. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We can't fly solo. We can't live in a silo. For our own salvation, we need one particular person to help us. This greater than Moses' name is the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life as a sacrifice to pay for our sins a substitute, and he was raised from the dead the third day to prove that what he did was satisfactory to the righteous demands of his holy father. God put a stamp of approval. Yeah, he's the one. Listen to him. Obey him. Trust him for your salvation. But you must ask him to save you. That didn't happen by osmosis. We can't continue thinking that we can do it ourselves, or somehow we can contribute. You know, God does his part and we do our part. No, salvation's by grace alone. It's the gift of God received by faith. Question, have you received God's salvation through Jesus Christ by faith? Have you been born again? You can be today if we reach out and say, yes, Jesus, I claim you. I want to close with a simple illustration of what I've been trying to teach you today. My office is right behind that wall right over there, the former infant nursery for those who've been around for a while. And uh, I, I'm blessed because I have windows in my office. And like most of our staff who don't, I feel bad about that. But uh, I, I, have, I have watched out my window. That there, there's a downspout that comes down under the eaves and curves around and goes down along the the brick siding, and there's a little gap between the eaves and the wall and the downspout, and in that area, uh, Mama Robin has built her nest, and I had a front row seat to watch her raise her family. Now, I do work while I'm in there. I want you to know that. I don't just stare out the window all day, but on occasion, I enjoy watching a little bit of Robin family life. And it isn't just the mommy robin that takes care of the eggs and feeding the kids. Did you know that? When they pair up, these robins, they both serve equally. Daddy sits on the eggs and helps hatch them too. He helps incubate. And once the babies are, are, are alive and out there doing their thing, then daddy helps to bring in some of the worms too. <laughs> both mommy and daddy are active, feeding the babies. And I also noticed, I, this really kind of shocked me, they worked in cooperation. I don't know which parent is which, to be honest with you, but one of them was there, and the other one flew up, and, and the one that flew in, he dropped his, his load of worms into the other parent's mouth, who in turn fed the babies. And I'm sure they did it the opposite way, too. So they were working in tandem, in cooperation, daddies and mommies together. And one day... I raised the window shade and looked out there, and I thought, they're gone. The babies have flown the coop. They've been raised and flown away. Isn't that the object of baby Christians, too? It is. 
this is going to sound weird to you, but I envision all of you, a bunch of baby robins out there with your beaks open right now. Feed me. Ah, feed me. Now, I'm not going to give you worms, but I'll give you the word, okay? And I just love it when people say, yeah, feed me, feed me. I'm hungry. Feed me. Because we want you to grow up and mature and be spiritual leaders and raise your own families for Jesus Christ. That's what church is really all about. As I look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, I, I find the job description for pastors, all of us on pastoral staff, all of us as elders, what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to equip the saints, that is the believers, for works of service, works of ministry, for the building up of the body, leading to, as it says in verse 12, until they become a mature person, until they come into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal. That's the goal here. <laughs> more people, more like Jesus, right? You've heard that? Yeah. We give them roots so we can give them wings. So we can't do life alone. The COVID quarantine teaches me we need each other. And I'll put a wrap in this message by sharing a very important point with you here at the church. We're reading a book called Next as we look into the future for all of us. What does next look like way down the line as we plan for succession? What does it look like? Here it is. A leader's lasting value is measured by succession. Moses eventually handed off to Joshua, but long before that, he handed off to thousands of other leaders who helped care for the flock. And that is godly leadership. Back to the dads in the home. Mentoring your kids is godly fathering. Don't farm that out to anybody else. The church, the school, whatever. No, that, that's on you guys. Take a page out of Moses' manual Bring the family alongside and equip them to help you in propagating the gospel and pursuing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's be a church that practices biblical discipleship. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to be that kind of a church it doesn't get satisfied simply with people coming to Christ. That's wonderful. We just desperately want to see more and more souls saved, but help us to do a good job equipping them so they can grow up and reproduce. Help us to develop more and more leaders and mentors in our church. Give us strength toward that goal. And Lord, as, as uh, Mr. Grassley challenged me last summer, I do pray for our country, for our president, our vice president, for our senators and congressmen, our Supreme Court justices, for all who are in authority, I pray, God, that you'll give them grace and wisdom. I pray for a spiritual awakening. I pray for a brokenness of repentance. And I pray for an outbreak of intercessory prayer. Oh, God, save us as a people, but you have to begin by doing that one-on-one -on -one with us. And if someone here, Lord, doesn't know Jesus, would you save them today? Would you open their eyes and may they say yes to Jesus, repenting of their self-trust and turning to Christ's trust instead. We love you. We bless you. 
we want to be a church that's all about biblical discipleship. Help us toward that goal, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together?